Hey, everyone. If you like what we do, make sure to give us a like and a follow on Apple Podcasts. And also give us a like and a follow every other place you listen to podcasts. That way we can keep doing what we love. And that's talking about animation while Netflix is doing everything in its power to not care about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host this evening. Joining me, as always, is the guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And today, we have an interesting triple feature. We've got reviews for My Neighbor Totoro. Pompo the Cinephile, and the bad guys. But first, as mentioned up at top, we have some bones to pick with Netflix, and not just because they canceled the Bones animated series. Oh, we'll get to that in a moment. So, if y'all have been paying attention to the world of pop culture and entertainment, Netflix took a, not a gigantic, like, loss, but... Their stocks dropped 30% and they lost a lot of subscribers. And a lot of that is because their decision to pull Netflix from Russia. So, and another thing that has now come to light are all the rumblings and rumors of how Netflix with their animation division is shifting gears per se. And unfortunately that comes at the consequence of yet another failed attempt at an adaptation of the popular Bones comic, a uh, witchy-themed series from Lauren Faust, and some shows that have been announced or not announced to be canceled because they are shifting their direction to, well, what the rumors and, like, the grapevine discussions have been of them wanting to focus more on franchise and boss baby as a sign of this is what we want the animation side of our service to be while also, you know, jacking up the price. A lot of emotions. What did you say, Mike? Yeah, to put it lightly. Like, to be clear, they're not shutting down the entire animation branch. They're not doing that. There's just a lot of the shift and change is happening at the children and family side of the animation branch. And like a lot of creators like who are working on projects at Netflix had to be like, hey, hey, listen, everything is fine. Our project is still getting made and finished. It's basically like most of the projects that they've already made deals and contracts with are going to get made. It's really just things that haven't quite moved past development that are in trouble right now. And that's frustrating because Netflix used to be the bastion, the safe haven, the one and all stop for creative individuals who have a unique idea to bring to their service and to get it made. That's why we have some of the most unique and standout shows and films because Netflix wanted no barriers. Unfortunately, because of other mitigating factors of Netflix not having proper production pipelines and essentially overspending when they cannot make that money back, well, 
that comes to bite you in the butt after a while. Gee, this sounds awfully familiar. Like, kind of like what happened with uh, Annapurna a few years back. Because they've had similar issues where, oh, sure, they love financing people's passion projects. When it comes to the financial side of things, yeah, that's where they always get into trouble. Well, it's like the head of the animation branch of Netflix, who served creative roles on groundbreaking series like Gravity Falls and Adventure Time, was like, hey, we want you, like, and this is way back in the day, to bring something here that you couldn't get made elsewhere. And that's so cool. That's why we got Mayan the Three, Centaur World, City of Ghosts, Kid Cosmic. And unfortunately, that seems to be on its last legs. Whatever we're going to get next or in the near future is going to be the last of that bastion of joy and happiness. Which is why I'm wondering if we're getting all of those great, amazing Netflix original features this year is them saying we're going to release a bunch during 2022 and then we can just clean the slate. As much as I want to see all of those Netflix features, yeah, that does kind of worry me a little bit. Like it feels like they're just being rushed out the door to usher in this new era. I don't think they're going to, they're rushed out door because a lot of these take so much time. And we've been hearing about them for like since 2018, 2019. At least, yeah. Or at the very earliest, 2017. So these were already in production and, you know, animation takes so much time. So a lot of these were going to take three to four years to get made. It's just worrying and it makes you wonder what exactly happened. And it doesn't help when, like, the creator of Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts went to TikTok and said, and essentially, like, blew down the door more of, like, what the production process was how... They would really want to get content for new subscribers, but they wouldn't really think about the ones that they already had or got because it was just constant growth. And now we're suffering the consequences of when a company thinks that constant growth is the only way to make a profit. And, you know, there are a lot of lessons to be learned while under the reign of capitalism. And here's the other problem, which I don't think we've gotten to yet. For so long, Netflix has been the only game in town. This was before the streaming wars and before companies like Disney and Apple. And pretty soon, all of the major studios having their own streaming service. And since Netflix is honestly, unlike those other studios, they are solely focused on this part of their business that they don't really have any backup plan if things start to go south. If say in the next six months, they start to lose more subscribers or their stock falls even further, at least with Apple, their streaming service is really just like a side hustle while everything else is still, you know, iPhones, laptops, TVs, etc. Yeah. And that's what's always baffled me about Netflix, because I've always brought this up. Why not release Blu-rays of your most popular stuff so it's not just stuck on your service? And I know why they don't. 
because they want you to subscribe to them so you can get it that way. Even though there are a ton of Netflix stuff already out in the wild on Blu-ray. And you also have the Criterion Collection where they have very select... Like, they just announced that they're going to put out a Criterion version of Okja. Netflix seems so afraid to have a secondary service of income to help pay for half of this stuff. And it doesn't even help that, like, the pacing of these productions and then the money going into some of them don't seem to match what's on screen unless it's something that they bought the rights to as and this is mostly just talking about their live action stuff unless they have like the proper team and they were given the amount of time to do so their films and shows always looked a touch flat just bad lighting very like everything just looked like mediocre in terms of production values, unless you saw something that was like, oh, okay, there was actual money put into this. It's maddening. And it kind of sucks to see a lot of people just saying like, oh, we're going to bail now because Netflix is dying. That is the wrong response to this. Instead, you should do everything in your power to support the shows that are either on the horizon or already out that emboldens the new executives to be like hey people like this stuff we should be making more of it like the biggest issue that i've also brought up and people kind of look at me funny for saying it netflix needs to stop using that bloody algorithm for their decision making it's not the magic eight ball you think it is i understand why they said the boss baby as their inspiration but even then They're paying a license to have that show on Netflix. I'm pretty sure they're just trying to use a scapegoat to not take all the blame that their executives and who's in charge just don't know what the hell they're doing. And that's the other thing in terms of the fan response. Please don't take your anger out on individual productions. Your anger should be directed at the top, not the cast and crew of shows like the boss baby like i get it i understand that netflix wants to have those big viewership hits but you're not going to get that all the time and plus they keep constantly canceling the stuff people like and it doesn't even make sense half the time when those shows were widely beloved and have huge viewership ratings if it doesn't match what the algorithm is saying then it doesn't matter So it makes you wonder how bad the numbers are for these things or what kind of system they're using to essentially like undershoot how good the shows are doing or just something like that. Because it like a lot of this came out where it's just like, hey, well, you get to make this and then that's it. That's all. And it really kind of leaves audiences high and dry when... Netflix is very untransparent with their numbers, at least with like Nielsen ratings. They show you exactly how many households are are watching a particular program. And the reason a lot of those are low is just because most of the nation has become cord cutters. But still, the fact that we don't get to see how certain movies and shows are performing really makes it all the more baffling when like these shows get canceled even though critics love them audiences 
are enjoying them and people are talking about them on social media. And we'll get to something else in a second about their specific release strategy. Yeah, and it's been confirmed and we've made jokes about it saying, oh, they're just going to release a trailer a month before and then nothing else. And it's been on the creators to help basically through guerrilla marketing to get people to say, hey, we're making stuff. Here's our new show or movie. Please watch it. Like City of Ghosts was one of the best shows of last year. And it's up for a Peabody Award. Netflix was essentially forced to say something. How absurd is that? And they're just like, eh, whatever. That's not the new thing. Here's this new thing. Like Netflix, how are they still alive if they are this incompetent and not caring about the actual films and shows that they are creating? The only time we actually ever get to hear something that is like an absolute failure is if it's actually worth mentioning. What was that superhero show that came out last year that was part of the Mark Miller universe? Like Jupiter something? Jupiter's Legacy. That thing only got eight episodes. It looked dirt cheap for how much money, who knows how much money actually got shoved into that thing. And nobody talked about it. And then it got (laughs) canned. And it's like, well, great. You put a bunch of money into something you had no faith in just to let it die. And now you could just ride it off, I guess. It's a shame people are now saying, oh, well, I'm going to unsubscribe. And it's just like, that sucks because I'll talk about this when we get to the recommendations. But like stuff like Battle Kitty is so fun and delightful. And there's just so much energy and passion put into it that it sucks that it has to be the victim when it's released the same week as the article from The Wrap came out saying like, hey, Netflix are just run by incompetent individuals. And that's a shame because I like Netflix. I loved that their push for more creative stuff because now all that talent that was making their work are leaving for other places like Elizabeth Ito is now working at Apple. One of the people behind Centaur World is now working at Cartoon Network. And it's now they're going to make stuff for their services or channels like for Cartoon Network. And now Netflix is left high and dry because their constant need for content was always going to end up in a quantity over quality situation. You took the words right out of my mouth. And here's the other thing, Cameron, you and I may disagree on like which specific release strategy is better, but I've kind of noticed ever since Disney Plus burst onto the scene that releasing shows weekly, you know, like a regular TV network would, is actually much better in terms of social media engagement and audience retention than dumping something right all at once. Us, that may be beneficial so we can actually talk about a series in one go, but in terms of growing your fan base and getting more people to tune in, I think weekly is the smarter decision. And it's not like Netflix doesn't do weekly releases. They do. The Great British Bake Off last season was released weekly. So 
their decision on what gets fully dumped onto Netflix and what doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. They could absolutely have built up more momentum and hype with something like Squid Game if they just released it weekly or like Hellbound or like the Silent Sea. Now, maybe sometimes it's for the best that they dump a whole season of something on there. Sometimes if like a show is not super story focused, it's okay to maybe release it all at once. But at the same time, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and say that a weekly release doesn't help. It does. And I hear a lot more about Central Park, more so than a lot of things that are on Netflix. Exactly. The end result of what's going on is that essentially Netflix, you're not the biggest dog in the park anymore. There are other dogs there and they're just eating your lunch. You got to start changing or either regress back to, you know, actually finishing the Bones series or like actually be supportive and stop just greenlighting everything possible. And, you know, also don't support people like Dave Chappelle. There are a lot of reasons why people are unsubscribing from Netflix. And this was just more the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm hoping that all of this discussion leads to some positive change, but until that happens, whatever damage comes from this, they brought it on themselves. Essentially, and to be clear, animation has gone through ups and downs throughout its entire existence. Disney had its weak points in the 70s and 80s until they brought themselves back up, and then they went into another downward spiral and then brought themselves back up. This is what's going on at Netflix. They hit some pretty big highs and now they're hitting some of their lowest lows. They will probably, if they are smart enough, learn from this situation and then go back up to being great again. Who knows? That could happen. Otherwise, whatever original stuff that looks fun and creative on Netflix, you need to support it. Be extremely vocal about it because until Netflix stops listening to that stupid algorithm, not much is going to change until then. But I'm hoping for the best. Same. Of course, if any of those creators who were working at Netflix are having new projects on like Cartoon Network or Apple Plus or what have you, watch them. Don't torrent them. Don't pirate them unless you absolutely have to. Like, you know, they're not released in your region and what have you but you got to support them properly yeah do whatever you can to support people being creative and telling stories that they love because that's how they get to make more of them and it would just be a shame if a lot of those people weren't able to make their work again just to reinforce do not go after the big mouth the human resources or the boss baby teams It's not their fault that Netflix sucks right now. Do not go after the people who worked on that really shoddy looking Marmaduke movie that's coming out. Do not harass anyone. You become the bigger villain by doing that because that's exactly what the Netflix 
higher ups want. They don't want to take any of the blame or the responsibility. They want a scapegoat. And that sucks. That is so scummy. But I think that's all that I have to say about this. I wish we had something better to talk about in like a animation trailer or something for something cool. But we'll have to wait until the end to talk about some recommendations of cool stuff. But for now, we have another stop on the Ghibli journey. This is another film from 1988. The one that kind of overshadowed Grave of the Fireflies, which is still an incredible movie. But this is the one that pretty much has become one of the most popular films in their catalog. This is My Neighbor Totoro. Yeah, this was was a part of a double feature for Ghibli where it was played alongside Grave of the Fireflies. And it's not hard to see why Grave of the Fireflies, while still critically acclaimed, got pushed to the side for My Neighbor Totoro. It's one of those like main examples of stories of just like a movie coming out and it just overshadows everything. We've had plenty of those. E.T. killed so many movies back then when it was released, like The Secret of Nim, and especially John Carpenter's The Thing. This is one of those films that also like gets a lot of hype and praise. It's essentially like when you think of Studio Ghibli and pop culture, Totoro is one of those big survivors of just being able to stay in the public conscious through decades since its release in 1988. Isn't Totoro like the actual mascot of the studio now? From what I remember reading, and I could absolutely be wrong here, there was a lot of love for Totoro when it came out. And the higher ups, like the execs, the investors of Studio Ghibli's like asked Miyazaki, like, hey, we have a lot of opportunities to make more money if we license Totoro as our mascot. And of course, Miyazaki being Miyazaki was like, eh, I don't like that idea. I don't want my artistic vision to be commercialized. And, you know, knowing what happened now, he obviously accepted that, that this was going to happen. And Mike, you kind of made everyone's heads explode when you told them this was the first time you've seen this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Part of me is kind of getting a kick out of seeing people's reactions to that. You're Um, you're basically causing all the people to be like that one robot in that Futurama episode (laughs) where it's just like, like, what? Boom. Don't get me wrong. I get it. We all have our blind spots. There's nothing to be ashamed about that. Not at all. It's just interesting because Totoro, like... Disney did not release Totoro originally. It was there was another dub and release when uh, I think it was 20th Century Fox. So about that in 1989, Streamline Pictures produced the English language dub, and Troma was the one who distributed it at the time. Then Fox Video put it on VHS and Laserdisc in the 90s, and it wasn't until 2004 that Disney acquired the rights to it. But it's just kind of funny that trauma is part of this film's legacy. (laughs) Yeah, especially if you know what kind of movies trauma made. And you think it's like, oh boy, what's this going to be? And then you watch it and you're like, what the hell is this? (laughs) Like, I mean, under the trauma name, I mean. What did you think about this movie, Mike? 
God, I love this. This was like the first thing I watched this morning and it just put me in such a good mood. Like the best way I can describe this movie is it's basically 90 minutes of snuggling up in a warm blanket. And that is honestly how I would describe Totoro himself. He's he's described as like a brawl. Yeah, he's really just a, a big teddy bear. He, yeah, he's a uh, forest spirit. I don't know where the heck Troll came from, but I could be, you know, missing out on some kind of Japanese mythology and folklore context to that. Because, you know, when I think of what a troll is in like fantasy films and shows, they're not this adorable. No. <laughs> Let's talk about Totoro's design first. This cat bear thing is one of the most iconic character designs of all time. Oh, easily. And, and the fact that, like, it showed up and stuff, like, there was a parody of Totoro in uh, one of the Samurai Jack episodes, I think in season three. And then Totoro appeared in Toy Story 3, just as a background character, but, you know, still there. Mostly because Lasseter was one of the big names to bring over the Ghibli films and had that much support behind it. And in the movie... Well, at least in the Disney dub, they got who else to voice this giant lovable beast, but the iconic, the ever amazing Frank Welker. Frank Welker. Hell yeah. Frank Welker is so good as a voice actor. And what's funny is he doesn't really do a whole lot in terms of like vocal performances he just uses like more of that uh what's the cave named in aladdin the cave of wonders yeah the cave of wonders voice for totoro except for very much just like some roaring some growls and then saying totoro he also voices the also iconic cat bus which is another just great design just a very alice in wonderland looking thing i love the cat bus it's it really is like miyazaki's version of the cheshire cat right right and now for the plot of this movie i will say i have seen people get really excited about watching this because you know totoro is like the quintessential ghibli movie this is the one you watch maybe next to kiki's delivery service and because those were like the first two brought over as like you know experiment of sorts to be like because you know the ghibli release history is bananas and we kind of talked about it back then with nausicaa and the valley of the winds and i've seen people watch this after taking in all the hype and excitement and then not really get or vibe with it as much as other people i want to say i kind of get it but i also think some people went in thinking it was going to be a different kind of movie it's a lot more laid back at least up until the third act which we'll get to in a second but really this movie just kind of it just kind of lets you hang out with these characters and just let them breathe and act like children who are just kind of exploring their surroundings. Yeah, so the whole plot of the movie is that a father is moving into the countryside with his two daughters, Satsuki and Mei, 
who are in the Disney dub, voiced by Dakota Fanning and Ellie Fanning. And the dad, Tatsuo, is voiced by Tim Daly. And fun fact, if you're an Earthbound fan, and you probably already know this, the creator of Earthbound, Shigesato Itoi, was the Japanese voice actor for the dad, Tatsuo. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's wild. Because you're just like, wait, what? (laughs) And if you recognize Tim Daly... That's the voice of Superman from the DC animated universe. Well, the the 90s cartoon, I think he drops out from Justice League. Yeah, um, in Justice League, it's George Newborn, but Daly will reprise his role a few times after that. Yeah, he's in like uh, Justice League Doom, Superman, Batman Apocalypse, Superman, Brainiac Attacks, and Public Enemies. So they move into this house in the countryside and... It's overtaken by those soot spirits that, yes, they do appear before Spirited Away, which is kind of interesting watching this movie again and be like, huh, that's right. They were in this movie before. I don't think there's any real connection between the two films. I'm just saying it's amusing to see the little Easter egg that the soot spirits become when you watch Spirited Away. May finds these little troll-like spirits And then, of course, runs into the biggest of them all, Totoro. They also meet one of their neighbors, Kanta, this young boy who obviously has a crush on Satsuki, and his grandmother, who was a caretaker of the house, who's voiced by Pat Carroll. I do agree. It's a very laid-back movie. There's not a whole lot of tension or, for right now, visible stakes. It's just the kids and the dad living in the countryside, because their mother, who is sick with some illness that you don't quite know what it is because they keep it extremely vague. It's them going through the trials and tribulations of dealing with moving to a new location and dealing with like the fact that the father has to go work at the university. And along the way, to get through these trials, Totoro appears. And that's what I really like about this movie. A lot of people could say, oh, nothing happens in this movie. It's not apparent at first. We live in this mindset that every stake of like the the story has to be immense and like earth shattering. When there's just like Satsuki and Mei being brave by staying at the bus stop when Totoro shows up to help them make sure they feel safe. And it's a coming of age like story for Mei and Satsuki. It's just a delight. I love the fact that they got both Dakota and Elle Fanning to voice the sisters because I think that really helps with their chemistry. This is still one of Elle's like very early performances and she is just amazing. She plays May very well, and Dakota does a good job as the older sister and the one who has to be kind of responsible while the dad is good. He's just more of a typical, likable Ghibli dad. And it's more of just like them living their life. And then during the third act, having to come to terms with something that they've been kind of skating around. And you can kind of get that vibe from them while the mom is at the hospital and they visit her. And she's definitely nice. Leia Salonga does a good job as the mom. It's like one of those things that creeps up on you. You can tell that this movie is framed from 
the children's perspective for a couple of reasons. One, that is kind of why they never explicitly state why their mother is in the hospital. And B, when they get the telegram, that's when the stakes rise exponentially. But even at that point, the stakes are they're having to come to terms that something might be more worse off for their mom and they're coming to terms with that. What's so fascinating about this movie is how like it doesn't talk down to its viewers or like the characters themselves. So the adults never talk down to the kids in this movie. Like even when like Maze is like, I saw Toro and then shows Satsuki and their dad where Totoro was when she was there but the dad's never like oh my goodness you are the worst it's just like huh well I'm sure he's choosing to not want to be seen right now and I think that's so cool it's such a small little detail with all the adults in this movie that you don't quite pick up on it until you watch this movie a couple times even I kind of picked up on that with like the people who are helping to find May when she kind of runs off, everyone is doing their part to help this family, which is always so cool to see in Miyazaki's films, how everyone in like either this small town or this fantasy world, they all kind of are little threads in a larger tapestry. Even like the bearing of like the weight of the responsibility that the characters have get to that point it feels very realistic. Like Satsuki is trying to be grown up and say like, hey, something might happen to mom, May, and you need to grow up about it. But Satsuki is also extremely vulnerable and upset about the situation. She just feels like she needs to put on a brave face because it wouldn't look good if, because May looks up to Satsuki. And I love that scene where they're at, Satsuki's at school and it's just like, uh, my sister's here. And everyone treats it as like the biggest thing to ever happen at this school. <laughs> and it's adorable. I love this film c- can be so delightful in its comedy. It's not like super upfront with its comedy. It's more just like, oh, that's kind of cute. Yeah. Like, I love this film's sense of humor. And I think my favorite character is Granny. And not just because, not just because of Pat Carroll's performance, although she is great. But just the characters, very easygoing and just kind of always there to to help the girls whenever they need it. Now, in terms of like the fantasy, the fantastical stuff about the film, it's also very underplayed. Not to say that there's none. I mean, we just talked about Totoro and the cat bus. But it's never, it's not as fantastical as, say, Castle in the Sky. It's more, it picks and chooses it's fantasy moments. And of course, it's a Miyazaki film, so we have to have at least one sequence of the characters taking a, a little flight. Of course, and Miyazaki, just like Makoto Shinkai, loves sky shots, skyscapes, and just flying. There's just not much else. I mean, like, yes, the moment where the film kicks in to the third act, it's a little more noticeable. I mean, that's always been kind of the thing with uh, Studio Ghibli films. Since they're so hangout-ish in tone and atmosphere, when it's like, oh, the plot has to kick in, it's noticeable, but I never find it as a 
detriment or that big of a detriment to the storytelling. Oh, yeah, me neither. It's just, it's noticeable, but that's such a minor little nitpick. There's just a reason why this film has stood the test of time. It might not be my favorite Ghibli film. I still think it's like Porco Rosso and Spirited Away, but it's one of the most important films of Ghibli's legacy. This one's not my favorite either, but I totally get it. For those who have this as their number one, I completely understand. It is absolutely worthy of like that top tier level. Like, yes, I am sad that Grave of the Fireflies did get overshadowed by My Neighbor Toro and that it kind of kicked off that whole notion that Isao Takahata got overshadowed by Miyazaki every other time he released a movie. But I'm not going to fully agree with that notion that there was this bitter rivalry or whatever. It's just more, it's understandable, but still a bummer. But when it's My Neighbor Totoro, you get it. Mm -hmm. I also never felt there was like a rivalry. It's more like whether or not you agree with individual examples, but like Takahata was always kind of the B-side to Miyazaki's A-side. Yeah, Miyazaki wanted to make his more fantastical films while Takahata wanted to make more grounded films with a touch of whimsy, but not have it as the main focus or like the main part of the story building. He wanted to make very human stories. I guess it's time to spin the wheel. I'm hoping for a good one. Well, it's Ghibli, so they'll all be good, but... Which one are you hoping for? I have my eyes set on two. Either Kiki's Delivery Service or Howl's Moving Castle. Alrighty. Here we go. What will you give us, Wheel? Heck yeah, we're going to the sky! We're going to watch Porco Rosso next time. Oh yes, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Just hands down... One of my favorite Ghibli movies, one of my favorite Miyazaki films, and just one of my favorite animated films, and just one of my favorite films ever. I can't wait for you to watch this one. I can't wait to watch this one. But for now, we must move on to another anime-adjacent film with us finally getting to see the newly distributed G-Kids feature Pompo the Cinephile. It was originally released last year. It competed at Annecy and showed up at other film festivals all over the place, especially animation as film. And then we finally got it. Feels like it should have come out earlier than that, but I get it. You want to be released during a time period where there's very little competition. And since there are basically no major animated films coming out until june why not come out at at the end of april pretty perfect timing so this movie is written and directed by takayuki hiro based on the manga of the same name by shogo sukatani and we follow pompo a movie producer who has been shooting one b-grade entertainment flick after another that anyone would enjoy. However, when her assistant, Jean, spots a script on her desk and is moved by the story, she tells him, you have to direct this. What were your overall thoughts with this one? Because I knew going into this one, 
it did not have the best reviews. And I'm not going to say I don't get it. I do. Because I agree with some of those like reviews. But at the same time, I kind of think it's better now after the whole fiasco with the Oscars and a few recent events and news stories about Hollywood icons not being great people. So what did you think? I think, if nothing else, this movie has its heart in the right place. If you are someone who is in a creative position or just has a passion for anything, whether it's movies, music, whatever dream you have, this movie is pretty much made for you. It's not the most well-executed film in terms of, you know, the pacing and the script, but we'll get into that in a second. On the whole, I enjoyed the characters. I think Gene, throughout this movie, looked how I have been feeling for the past couple months. Pleat with the baggy eyes and the I just want to get this day over with look in his eyes. Right, so... What did you like about this film? Like, let's talk about the pros before we talk about the cons. I think the one thing I really liked about this movie is I just really got a kick out of the film within a film, Maestro. Yeah. And just all the parallels between Gene trying to make his magnum opus. And I think the characters like... Martin Braddock. Yeah. His character in the, the film within the film is you know, this composer who wants to be, like, the greatest. And in order to do that, he has to, like, make all these sacrifices. I think it's just kind of cool how the movie within the movie parallels what's going on in the real world. I love the animation. Anytime we see Gene plugging away on on his computer, editing the film, that's when the colors get all stylized and, and we get to see, like, these flashing reels shooting at the screen. It's some of the coolest sequences in the entire movie yeah this film has a very interesting editing style like in terms of like how scenes are cut and they move from plot point to plot point feels very much like gene is editing the whole movie yeah which it is, does which is amusing because that's like a lot of what the runtime is is gene looking saying like hey let's do this and then learning and cooperating with The other actors like Natalie Woodward and Martin Braddock. And then getting like either the approval or just the snide remarks from Joel Davidovich Pompo Pomponet. (laughs) Quite a long name. And I'm not going to say that these are the most complex characters because you kind of get who they are. Like Mystia Leons, who's voiced by Anne uh, Yatko is the like the pretty bombshell like character and actress and such that Pompo seems to fall back on because it's like if the actor is hot then the movie is good. I'm not going to lie and that's not true half the time but you know you put a hot person on the screen and a lot of people are willing to forgive some things. (laughs) I think what's really interesting about the tone of this movie it's both a loving tribute to filmmaking but it also has like a tiny touch of cynicism attached to it. I noticed a bit of uh, cynicism. They walk this really fine line between over-romanticizing the filmmaking process 
but also like overly criticizing it too. I mean, like, I'm not going to say that the part where Pompo is talking about movie length is inaccurate. <laughs> I mean, like, I know that this debate comes up all the time where people are like, movies are way too long. They need to be shorter. There, there was even an SNL sketch called Short Ass Movie. <laughs> yeah. With Keith Davidson. Yeah, yeah, that, that one's great. But I also kind of get it. I like her wording of the situation. It's more, if you're going to go past 90 minutes, then you got to make sure you make the most precise movie and story possible. Because it's more, it's not really a thing about the length of the runtime. It's more the pacing. Because if you absolutely need two hours to tell a movie or more, then you better have a good story attached to it. Otherwise, people are going to notice and they're going to check their watches or stop watching the movie on a streaming site or what have you. I've had that happen before. Like The Power of Dog, it's two hours, but it doesn't feel two hours. Don't Look Up is over two hours and it feels longer. The same with that Judd Apatow film that I just think is awful, The Bubble. Not to be confused with the great anime film that's coming out next week as of recording this, Bubble. That's why I like a good 90-minute movie. You get in and out a good enough story and for an entertaining time. Basically, Pompo's argument is, and it is kind of fitting that this movie is almost exactly 90 minutes. Like her argument is you have to give your audience a reason to keep their eyes glued to the screen. I do like a lot of the editing jokes in this movie where it's just like, hey, make this 15 second teaser. And it goes through all the notions of what a decent 15 second teaser trailer does. And then they're like, wait a minute. What's with this shot right here? And then Gene is like, well, it's there to express emotion and to mislead people. And then they're like, hmm, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Which, hey, we've seen this all the time where shots and trailers do not show up in the actual movie. Yep. I like some of the dynamics. Like, I like Pompo as a character. I like Gene. I like the adorable innocence that Natalie has for being like the aspiring actor and such. And Mystia is a lot smarter than you would think her character would be. And I like that. I like that there is some nuance to some of these characters. She's very business savvy. Even if that knowledge makes her a little bit selfish, like, yeah, I'm a movie star. I don't want to show up in other people's movies and not be the star. So that's why she's kind of, she has like an uncredited appearance in Gene's film. Right, right. And what other scenes did you like from this movie? Honestly, I think one of my favorite scenes was the business meeting with Alan and the rest of his bank firm. Yeah. I love the reveal that, oh, by the way, this has all been live streamed. So yeah, read and weep. Yeah. <laughs> Even though that's absurd that he, he was able to pull that, that off, it's still amusing. I We'll talk about the story aspects and just how the story was told overall. And Martin Braddock wasn't my favorite character just because 
of some recent news stories. Like his mannerisms came off a little like, uh, I mean, that's not the character's fault. It's just timing. Yeah. If you know what's going on with Netflix and the another movie that just had to stall production because of investigations of misbehavior and what have you. Like, if you know, you know. And I like that even though there is definitely some nepotism mentioned of how Pompo is the granddaughter to J.D. Peterson, the essentially Martin Scorsese-ish icon of the film. He's definitely like a a likable individual and he doesn't talk down to Gene as a character. He's like, hey, you just got to have that one push. And then everything will fall into place. I really like that about him. He was he was very supportive in ways that he needed to be without like either taking too much control away from Pompo or just kind of like not believing in her. He's there as basically moral support. Yeah, the animation is just great. It's super expressive. It has a touch of a more retro style look to the characters, even though I would only say that for a few of the characters. While some of them, like Mystia and Alan's boss, have more modern day or like great pretender-ish designs. I can kind of see that, yeah. But I like the older, like retro style looks of like Pompo. Like it is definitely like you watch this movie and it's like, oh man, the animation is just great. It's not like, well, the animation was already great and this is just slightly better. Or it's like, why the heck do they just use the TV quality animation for a movie? <laughs> that happened a lot back in the day. So I like the voice cast to be perfectly clear. We only got a screener to talk about the subtitle version, but there are clips and a trailer that's out for the English version. And they got a pretty good lineup of voice actors. The, Voice director is Stephanie Shea, who's, you know, longtime voice actor and voice director. Pompo is voiced by Brianna Gentileila. Jean is voiced by Christopher Trendad. Natalie Woodward is voiced by Jackie Lastra. Mistia is voiced by Anne Yatko. Martin Braddock is voiced by Kenneth Covet. Alan Gardner is voiced by Jonah Platt. Alan's boss is voiced by Gavin Hammond. The not really all there. Director Corbett is voiced by Brock Powell. J.D. Peterson is voiced by John H. Mayer, who's a old school voice actor. He appeared in so many, like way back in the day when like when anime was slowly starting to come out. And then we also have like Thomas Bromhead and Michael Sorek as well as there. And I liked the theme song, like, during the big climactic, like, I'm editing the movie, my masterpiece. That was nice. The composer is uh, Kenta Matsukuma, and I think they did a great job. And, but that's really all I have, because the rest of the film I want to talk about, like, it has all the passion of film lover, but it also has the pacing and the story structure of someone who's, I'm not going to say, like, what feels like a college short film, it's an uneven story. I think that's its biggest problem. I think that's fair. This does kind of come off like, to some extent, it's kind of by design, but it does kind of feel like 
a first-time director as opposed to the actual director has been around since like the mid to late 2000s. Still, it does kind of feel a bit amateurish in terms of its pacing. And I am kind of wondering if part of the problem is the fact that they're condensing the six-volume manga into 90 minutes as opposed to, you know, taking the time to flesh the story out. I'm wondering that too, because it just goes into like the meta-ness of like the, of Pompo being like 90 minutes only. Maybe it would have been a good idea to make it two hours just to let the characters breathe a little or be able to pace the story better because it does seem like at points, Alan Gardner was brought in to be like a last minute save for the plot. It does kind of feel like that. Like the whole thing with the, with like the crowdfunding campaign did kind of feel like a deus ex machina. Like, oh, suddenly they have exactly the right amount of money they need to finish the movie. And even then, like the head of the bank is like, oh yeah, sure. We'll give you 10 times the amount of your Kickstarter. And it's like, whoa, okay. Uh, A lot of this seemed kind of pointless. I mean, it was there to prove a point that people wanted to see the movie. I understand sometimes when you hear the production of a film go through some either reshoots or delays, it becomes worrying. And I get that. But at the same time, it's like no film production is ever smooth. Exactly. Or it never is as smooth as people would like you to think it is especially when those like behind the scenes drama pieces come out saying like oh yeah no it was not good (laughs) especially for someone's like first feature like you're going to have bumps in the road yeah and that's fine not everyone makes a great move like right off the bat even with all like the editing thing and a few moments and mannerisms that i saw throughout the film where i'm like oh that i that wouldn't be happening today (laughs) or in the current climate that we live in which you know for the better maybe it's just because we went through one of the worst oscar releases ever but this movie warts and all is a lot more passionate and loving about the world of filmmaking than the actual industry and the oscars at hand yeah i felt that watching this movie like wow this movie feels like it was made by cinephiles for cinephiles and like where is the love in the actual hollywood as opposed to what is it Hollywood? yeah Hollywood. <laughs> i gotta say i just love in anime and and anime movies where they try so hard to avoid product placement that they make like fake names for companies like amazon like me amazon or <laughs> My favorite is Pepsi is Nyepsi. I enjoyed Pompo the Cinephile. It's rough. It's not polished. It could have had a better story. But it's a lot of fun to watch. I definitely enjoy it. It's not in my top 10. It's hovering around outside the top 10. But I could absolutely see myself coming back to this movie and just kind of watching it just to feel good i mean i definitely recommend it it's going through a limited release by the time our episode's probably going to come out so if you feel safe enough and want to go to the theaters to watch this movie please do 
if you can make Jujitsu Kaizen a hit in theaters, we need to keep using that energy to make sure all of the Japanese animated films that are coming out in theaters to do financially well. Uh, like, and I'm not saying you got to make a billion dollars. No, you got to be successful in the same sense of like an A24 film being successful. It's not breaking a billion dollars, but it's doing better the usual release. I wish that G Kids gave this a little bit of a wider release like they did with Bell. That wasn't like a huge box office smash, but it was performing well over that weekend. The screening that I went to had a very nice turnout. With that sort of consistency, it'll help the entire industry. It'll get more eyeballs on like animated films from around the world. There was an article that was going around maybe a few months ago in Japan about like the current state of the the theatrical animation scene in Japan where they were making a bunch of films off of the hype and release of Makoto Shinkai's Your Name and were getting very few returns in that regards. And, you know, sometimes the films that they released just weren't as good or very good, just subjectively speaking. And they're starting to look more at let's make the oodles of money that stuff like Demon Slayer and Jujutsu Kaisen and My Hero Academia make with their franchise films. Essentially like going around of just like what Hollywood is going through right now with like, we want to make a billion dollars because everyone goes sees those Marvel movies. And I hope that doesn't change because Japan is like one of the best places for unique and distinct animated films. I hope they don't fall into that rut of we're just going to put out and release franchise films because they're the only ones that make money. Hey, if you're going to make franchise films, at least make them as good as Demon Slayer and Jujutsu Kaisen. Like if you feel up to it, it's not perfect, but go see Pompo the Cinephile. There are so many films that you could be seeing right now than Fantastic Beats 3. I'm just saying. Because instead of seeing another mediocre failure of a film of a from a failure of a franchise, you can go see The Bad Guys. This is a movie directed by Pierre Parafel, who's making his feature film debut from a screenplay he co-wrote with Eaton Cohen and based on the children's book series of the same name by Aaron Blady. In this film, we follow the notorious criminals, Mr. Wolf, Mr. Snake, Mr. Piranha, Mr. Shark, and Miss Tarantula, who, after a lifetime of legendary heists, are finally caught. To avoid a prison sentence, the animal outlaws must pull off their most challenging con yet, becoming model citizens. Under the tutelage of their mentor, Professor Marmalade, love that name, the dubious gang sets out to fool the world that they're turning good. The only reason I didn't give this a five out of five is because I've just seen so many heist movies that I kind of see the rhythm of these things. Right. But with that being said, this is still a very high energy, high octane, super stylized movie that I'm so glad um, DreamWorks finally uh, delivered. 
because the animation is gorgeous and it's just really cool to see the 2D animation coordinator for Kung Fu Panda 2 get to stretch his wings and and really pump out a banger. This film might not reinvent the wheel of action heist comedies, but as I've said many times before, we keep wanting to push for new and innovative experiences that people are, whether they know it or not, are overlooking films that are just great comfort food level movies that they're not out there trying to make something super innovative. They're just there to be a great time and do a good job being said great time. And this is a damn good time. Yeah, this was just a blast. And subjectively speaking, I didn't care much for DreamWorks' 2021 output. Yes, Spirit Untamed was not made for me. We talked about that in our review of it. But it definitely had a very narrow audience for who it was made for. And even then, that doesn't excuse it if you do not like the movie. And then the Boss Baby 2, well, Boss Baby Family Business, love the animation, super quirky still, love the expressions and the movements of the characters. The story still fell flat. And it was a curious situation of just like, huh, DreamWorks it seems to be relying a little too much on the sequel stuff to their franchises because... This is their first quote-unquote original non-franchise related film. Man, I think in forever. Oh, wait. Abominable was either 2018 or 2019. Oh, that was 2019. Yeah. Okay. So like a span of two years where it seems like they were really leaning on their sequel stuff. Kind of like how Disney was doing that during 2018 and 2019. Yep. And like when this trailer dropped, funny enough, on my birthday, when everyone saw the stylized, cartoony CGI animation, everyone was like, wow. Even the director himself said like, yes, we got the okay to do this because Into the Spider-Verse, which yes, I know everyone's upset about Cross the Spider-Verse is getting delayed to next year. But listen, 2022 is already a beefy year. We'll be fine. If this is the level of films that we are watching this year with the bad guys and turning red, I think we're going to be good. In an interview, the director talked about how DreamWorks and everyone was really wanting to push for more realism to their designs and animation and such. And he essentially shot back with the, at DreamWorks saying, listen, it's cool y'all want to do this, but we already kind of hit that point with the Lion King remake from 2019. There's nowhere else to go. And that's why we have this movie with its extremely cartoony and expressive visual flair. It's essentially like DreamWorks' approach to the stylized uh, CGI with the 2D paint job and 2D effects compositing that you would see in Spider-Verse or 
in Netflix's Arcane. Like the style, at least with the character designs and the facial expressions, it reminds me a lot of Lupin the Third and early Akira Toriyama. <laughs> Funny enough, that's the exact same thing I was thinking about with this film. And, you know, Mr. Like Lupin does mean wolf. And even Mr. Wolf's mannerisms and how he moved, how he walked, and even down to what he wore was very much Lupin the Third inspired or referenced. And it even goes right down to the overzealous, super obsessive police chief who's voiced by Alex Borstein. Misty Luggins is way too close to, um, to that character for this to just be a coincidence. Well, the director in an interview with Cartoon Brew did talk about like how anime was a heavy inspiration on like how the characters looked and moved. And you could especially see the loop in the third stuff, Misty, and how all the police would just kind of move as a blob of <laughs> arms and legs whenever the they're dealing with the bad guys. Or during a car chase when like when they're being chased by like thousands of police cars at once. Yeah. There's actually a scene that takes a little homage to I from what I could tell from one of the uh I think it was like one of the 90s OVAs of Lupin III. I think it's called like the Fuma clan conspiracy. The scene where Misty grabs onto the side of the bad guy's car while her feet are still in her car, police car. I mean, it's not like that's the first time you see that sequence, but it definitely, with hearing how Lupin III was a big inspiration for the film's tone and vibe, it makes sense that you do a, a few homages to everyone's favorite thief from Japan. And golly, just the expressions. I love that we're in this state of let's make extremely expressive characters. We can do more than what we were limited to for years. And I know a lot of people are sick and tired of like, oh, look at this movie. The more cynical people are saying like, oh, well, this movie wouldn't have happened if Spider-Verse didn't do it first. And it's like, okay, listen, fine, whatever. Spider-Verse was the one to break down the doors. That's a good thing. I don't know why some people are framing it as a bad thing or just something negative towards films like Turning Red and The Bad Guys. Because this is what we wanted. We wanted films to start having more distinct visual flair to their end product. And... This is also one of the few times where I feel like all the characters have substance to them in terms of like the main five characters. It's definitely, I mean, yes, the more emotional beats of the story are given to Mr. Wolf and Mr. Snake with their friendship, even down to like how the opening of the entire movie is basically a reference to Pulp Fiction. Yep. And I think Mr. Snake is actually wearing a, Johnny Depp's like attire from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I think he is. I think that's an interesting choice and reference points. And I liked the dynamic between Snake, Shark, Piranha, Tarantula, and Wolf. Like, of course, the voice cast is great. Sam Rockwell is essentially the ideal, like, smarmy guy 
but who has a lot of charm and gets away with everything because of that charm. He plays exactly the right notes for that character. And Mr. Shark is like the delightfully lovable guy who's voiced by Craig Robinson. And Craig Robinson is always a delight to see and hear. I love the whole disconnect of how he's this big shark, but everyone keeps falling for his disguises. The one that cracked me up the most was uh, when they were rescuing the, the guinea pigs and he's disguised as the security guard's father. <laughs> oh, that one's great. I do think it's a very cute joke of like his greatest heist was stealing the Mona Lisa disguised as the Mona Lisa, which, okay, people. <laughs> and I liked Aquafina as Miss Tarantula. She brings a, like a savvy, sassiness to the character. Mr. Piranha is like this bundle of uncontrollable rage and joy and like innocence yeah. to him because he'll get really mad at the drop of a dime. But he's also probably one of the more laid back characters of the film. And one of my favorite little moments of Mr. Piranha is when they're at, at Professor Marmalade's estate and they're like doing so badly at trying to be good guys that Professor Marmalade is saying like, okay, this is the easiest thing you can do. How do we save the cat that's stuck in a tree? And of course, everyone says like, shake the tree, cut the tree down. Mr. Piranha, and I love this little animation detail, he's the only one to actually put some thought into it before he says his wrong answer. (laughs) While I don't think this is the strongest comedy from DreamWorks, I think there are a few jokes that kind of fall flat for me. The farting gag. Yeah, and like, it only appears three times throughout the movie, and that's fine. But still, the fact that it's still partially an instigator for some to be like to tense up the situation is a little disappointing because his gag of being like the guy with the short temper and who will fight anyone or anything that deems to want to fight him. I don't want to feel like a snob because like the first fart joke is cute. But then after a while, it's like, uh, even though it only shows up three times. But the dark comedy is delightful. I love the sequence where, well, really, when they're trying to learn to be good guys and Mr. Snake has to share the push pop with Mr. Shark. And Mr. Shark just gets so fed up with Mr. Snake that he just eats Mr. Snake just to get to the push pop. (laughs) And he's just like, I like being good. It's so delicious. And then you hear Mr. Snake go, worth it. (laughs) or when they're doing the helping an old lady cross the street and everyone thinks Mr. Piranha can't do it. And Miss Piranha gets of course sour with them. He's saying like, you don't think I could do this? Well, you come over here and do it. And then Mr. Wolf who's dressed up as the old lady just gets hit by a truck. There are like a lot of fun jokes, especially like when you get to the later parts and you find out that, you know, spoilers, Professor Marmalade is not who he says he is. And he's not my favorite villain. But Richard Ayoade is so good and is having so much fun as the character of Professor Marmalade. Probably the one Marmalade-related thing that Paddington will not like. What's your take on Professor Marmalade? He's not my favorite villain, but he's my favorite kind of villain. Like the one who is just evil for the sake of being evil. 
And this is one of the few times where obviously it's a heist film, so you're going to have twists and turns. But this is like the one time where the surprise villain reveal actually works and is in service of the plot and not just a twist for the sake of being a twist. Right, right. It does. It makes sense. And I still get a huge kick out of Marmalade's like shrinking patience for the bad guys after they just keep constantly failing. And he's like, okay, how do you save the cat? (laughs) And listen, I know a lot of like, apparently some people were comparing this to Zootopia because of like for thematic reasons, because of how like the symbolism of like these animals, the bad guys are representing of animals who are not liked in the real world and how it's like, well, if society doesn't like us, they think we're bad guys, then we'll just be bad guys. How, you know, society may shape or force people into certain paths, but I wouldn't go into this movie expecting something extremely deep or complex. Like, don't go thinking this is going to have like the same kind of like philosophy or moral quandaries as like something Pete Doctor would touch. This borrows like a few elements from Zootopia. It's not really a 1v1 comparison. No, I I would argue that neither film are comparable just because there are some angles you can take with the discrimination factor from both movies. They're both entirely different movies. Well, Interesting enough, they probably would make for an interesting double feature because you have a buddy cop comedy and an action heist comedy. That would actually be a nice double feature. Yeah, yeah. Now, what did you think of Zazie Beetz's character, Diane uh, Foxington? Oh, I thought she was great. (laughs) I think Diane is one of the better written DreamWorks characters. As much as I love Kung Fu Panda and How to Train Your Dragon, they don't always get the same female character treatment that the male characters do i think diane foxington is a course correct on that she's savvy she basically is on the same level as the bad guys in terms of well when you find out that she was what the crimson paw yep i liked her i thought she was well written well acted by zazie beats her animation was great i love this character and i love once they actually reveal her identity and she's like actively helping them with the last heist the animation in that scene is incredible someone on twitter actually shared the moment of her you know jumping onto the like her motorbike that was that was her briefcase that part's great the choreography the shadow work it's all just so well timed this is one of the most fun action movies i've seen in a while not just animated but live action as well and it reminds me of a lot of the films that I would see back in like the 70s or the 80s or maybe something more recent like the Donnie Yen film Raging Fire. And that opening sequence with the car chase and how it's basically two different car chases in like one six minute span is great. I love them just going out of the diner and I love all the little jokes. It's just like, I love this place. You can always find a seat here. And they're like, it's like, isn't that always the case? You see everyone's just mortified against the wall and such. And then they walk over to the bank and they're doing that whole guinea pig thing. Like, so guinea pigs, it's the Rolls Royce of rodents. Yeah, but it's still a rodent. <laughs> and 
then they get into the car and then they keep they pick up all the different members of the group and then they stop right in front of the police station just to extend the car chase and oh my god that song sequence that plays during the second half of the song uh stop drop and roll by can't stop won't stop might be one of the best needle drops so far it is a great needle drop i think the the entire soundtrack of this movie is great i even love the original song that anthony ramos gets to sing good tonight yeah that song is great it's basically the reason why ramos was cast in that role to give him an excuse to belt out a song like that right right and and then like the songs at the end were also great and but man that car chase sequence just well why should i be shocked that the person who set up the fights in Kung Fu Panda 2 knows how to execute action sequences. Like even like the, the non car chase sequences are great. And I just love all the movements and just how all the characters move. There's so much. I, I just love about the film's visuals and just how it's all executed. This film is a delight. And yes, they don't do anything to reinvent the wheel. Yes, there is no real in-world explanation why there's a talking snake, humanoid wolf, like in humanoid animals in general. I could care less about like the minute details like that. Here's the thing. Nobody really cares. <laughs> Sorry. It's just funny because I know there are a few content creators who are going to get so mad at this movie for not explaining every little thing. And this movie's just like, I don't care. I'm just doing what I'm doing. Stay mad. Die mad. Well, of course, the whole, like, breaking the fourth wall moments of uh, Mr. Wolf going like, yeah, we might be bad guys, but we're so good at it. (laughs) And, well, this movie is a rip-roaring good time. Just one of the most fun had when being back in the theaters. I put it up there with everything, everywhere, all at once. As the most fun I've had watching a movie in the theater this year so far. I had a great time with this. And one last thing before heading to recommendations. As of now, the book series that this is based off has 15 volumes, which means if they want to do a sequel, and I know the director wants to do a sequel, they have plenty of material to mine. Or if they just want to go in a new direction, they can totally do that too. Yeah, I would absolutely love to see a sequel to this. And how much of a weird, surprising redemption arc, which is fitting for a whole movie that's all about redemption arcs, is it for Ethan Cohen? Oh, yeah. The last movie that he wrote and directed is like one of the worst comedies I've seen in a while. Holmes and Watson, just ooh. Yeah. Um, and then this movie comes along and it's honestly the best thing he's done in ages yeah just the right amount of heart the character dynamics are great the emotional bond between snake and wolf feels like there's just been history even though this is like the first movie we see him in exactly and uh, pierre parafel like he's also worked on a short called bilby i think you can get it on the how to train your dragon 3 blu-ray if i remember correctly and yeah, I would love to see this be, I want there to be more original stuff, but this is like one of the few 
like films that opens itself up to a franchise. And I'm not saying I want 15 movies. I want them to adapt the ones that would make for the best kind of movie. I would definitely like to see a sequel. Now, if this gets turned into a TV series, I hope that they go a 2D route. I do not want to see what a lower budgeted CGI series would look like. Same. In fact, I'll go one step further. I hope if they do turn this into a TV series that they actually get someone who's worked on Lupin the Third involved because that would just be really cool. I want, like, if they were to turn this into a TV series and with DreamWorks' track record, they do tend to make films that give them the most possible franchise material. I would like to either see the studio that makes the rise of the TMNT or Glitch Tech. That would be so good. I think that would be a perfect fit for a studio to do that. So uh, DreamWorks, if you're listening to this and you hear us suggest that, you can give me credit. I'm fine with that. Or, you know, give me and Mike a small part in the next Bad Guys movie. Just even in the background. I felt so selfish thinking this. I wish this movie was on Peacock only because I wanted to watch it again and just did not have the time to go back to the theaters. Same. I might try to find time during the week if if I can, but I just had such a great time watching this. I hope if you're feeling safe, feeling comfortable, that you go check this out for yourselves. I'd say go in an afternoon. Like, go on a quiet day like a Tuesday or something. That's usually, for me, the time period where there's just no one there at a movie theater. So it's just like, yeah, get the theater to myself. For the most part, maybe three or four other people will show up, but yeah, I just love this movie. I am so happy it exists and I hope DreamWorks continues this new stretch of like stylized CGI past this year because we don't really know what they're making next. I know they're, they have a Trolls 3 in the works and then the ever looming shrek reboot or whatever kind of hanging over everything but just go see this movie it's a blast and it's going to be like the one animated film you can go see in theaters yeah i can't wait to buy this movie on a blu-ray i absolutely have it i am shocked there's not an art book for this movie or at least i couldn't find an art book for this movie hopefully they put one out soon i would love to buy it i just want to read all the stuff about the behind the scenes and production notes and the like the design Bible and what have you. For recommendations, Mike, what do you have? So I've got two. The first one, I kind of have to recommend The Proud Family, Louder and Prouder. I don't know when we'll be able to talk about this in depth, but since this, the first season just ended, I just got to take one more opportunity to sing its praises. This has been such a delight to watch. Getting to revisit these characters in a way that felt fresh while still kind of staying true to what made the original so great. They just greenlit a season two a couple weeks ago. I'm just excited just to see these characters continuing to tell fresh and interesting new stories. And then my other recommendation, by the time this episode is released, the first five episodes of The Owl House season 2B will be on Disney+. Plus. 
without getting into spoilers, because we will be talking about this at the end of next month, this show has been firing on all cylinders. Some of my favorite episodes of the entire series are in this bunch, and I'm very much looking forward to discussing these in greater detail. Look forward to that. What about you? What are your recommendations? I kind of spoiled what I wanted my recommendation to be. I, Since Netflix is going through what they're doing right now, and that means that any original animation properties that are getting released need all the support in the world. And I'd recommend people check out Battle Kitty. The name sounds absurd, and then you hear it's an interactive series. And that kind of brings up some weariness of just like, uh, what am I going to have to do here? I'm not fully deep into the show. I'm through a good chunk of the first part of it. But it's pretty much playing like a video game in some ways, not in a super interactive way, but just moving the characters to these either 12 minute or three minute shorts and seeing the plot progress either in a more substantial way or in a minor way, or just having a quirky, fun little gag routine or something like that. It's animation is so distinct for CGI and for something that's made for a TV slash streaming service. It's like they took 3D models of characters and then did the bare minimum of like their movements, but then took the bare minimum and cranked it to 11 to how snappy it all is. That sounds like it'll be a fun watch. It's an absurd show with some very just out there humor. But if you've seen Centaur World, think of that kind of humor. It's a lot of fun and it's got a lot of good actors in it. Like you'll hear like Gray Griffin, you'll hear Gideon Adlon, Baker Terry, Thurup Van Orman shows up at one point and Robbie Damon does as well. It's a delight. Just one of the most distinct and entertaining things that I have ever seen in terms of animation on Netflix. And hopefully Netflix doesn't throw this one under the bus because, you know, they're crappy marketing and terrible distribution method. So yeah, definitely give Battle Kitty a watch. We're definitely going to talk about this next time. Oh yeah. I am so excited to talk about this one. Cameron, where can everyone find you online? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Cam's Eye View. I run my own website called camseyeview.biz where I review animated shows and films from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camseyeview. If you like my work and want to support me in some way, shape, or form, that's one way you can do it. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can find me in all the various Facebook groups just at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. You can also find us on Podchaser or in the Banana Meter. Listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And last but not least, everything can be found at RenegadePopCulture.com. Need to escape? So do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.